Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Women Innovate Mobile's Kelly Hoey and investors Alessandra Peel and Brad Feld. Thank you, Josh. It's great to be back and good to see everyone here at the Apple Store in Soho. So it's absolutely my pleasure to have these two gentlemen up here with me. Um, they are investors, they are visionaries in the startup community, and so we've, I'm going to say, a lot to talk about, and we also want to turn it over to you for questions, because I know you have them. So I actually want to start with Brad. Thank you for being here this evening. My and, pleasure. And you have your thesis, the Boulder thesis, on startup communities. And so, and I don't want any show of hands for, everyone, for anyone who has not written, uh, read your book. Tell us what the Boulder thesis is. Sure. So in uh, 2010, I started thinking hard about what had happened that it had caused Boulder, Colorado, where I've lived since 1995, uh, to become a world-recognized startup community. And uh, I lived in Boston for 12 years prior to moving to Boulder. And I've invested as an angel investor and a venture investor in Boston and New York and Seattle and San Francisco and Los Angeles and plenty of other places. So I was really intrigued with what had happened. And I spent some time thinking about it and came up with four principles that I think apply uh, to any city. And if you apply these principles, I believe that you can create a startup uh, community anywhere. And in fact, I believe every city uh, of a certain size, about 50,000 people or more, needs to have a startup community as part of its fabric. The startup community isn't the only thing, obviously, going on in this city, but it's part of what keeps a city innovative and fresh and alive and continuing to move forward. Uh, so the four principles, uh, briefly, are first, that the leaders have to be entrepreneurs. I separate the world uh, of participants in a startup community into two categories, leaders and feeders. The leaders have to be the entrepreneurs. The feeders are everyone else, government, university, big companies, venture capitalists. Feeders play a very important role, but the organizations themselves can't be the leaders. You have to have a critical mass of entrepreneurs who are providing leadership. Second principle is that these entrepreneurs need to have a very long-term view. I like to say at least a 20-year, at least a generational perspective. And the reason for this is that startups take a long time. You don't create a startup in a year or two or three. Every now and then something gets bought in the third year for a billion dollars, but that's an edge case. Normally it's five, 10, 15 years, and many entrepreneurs, it takes two or three companies before they build a successful business. So the startup community has to have the same kind of long-term view, where you're always looking forward for a very long period. Third principle is that you have to be inclusive of anyone who wants to engage in the startup community in any way. This notion that whether you're a first-time entrepreneur or an aspiring entrepreneur, experienced, uh, an investor, somebody that's in a big company that wants to engage with entrepreneurship, somebody that's moved to town, somebody that's left town, the startup community needs to be inclusive of anyone who wants to engage. The fourth principle is that you have to have activities and events on a continual basis that engage the entire entrepreneurial stack. When I talk about activities and events, I'm not talking about Entrepreneur of the Year awards or cocktail parties or networking events at rich people's houses. I'm talking about things like Techstars, which is an accelerator which we started in Boulder, Colorado. We have a program that's actually running right now in New York in uh, uh, Cooper Square, right across from the Cooper Union. It's a 90-day program where you we actually fund uh, 10 to 12 companies, 20 to 30 entrepreneurs, and surround them with mentors to put them through this 90-day intense program where they're not just building their companies but accelerating their companies. Or something like Startup Weekend, which is a 54-hour simulation of entrepreneurship for anyone who's interested in understanding what it's like to be an entrepreneur. It also turns out to be a great place to find a partner if you're looking for a co-founder or possibly uh, employees if you're looking for people who are interested in working for a startup because they tend to go to those things. So four principles are having continual activities and events across the entire entrepreneurial stack, this notion of inclusiveness and this belief that anyone can participate and this willingness to embrace anybody, a very long-term view, and fundamentally the leadership has to be entrepreneurs. I was saying, and I'm a bit of a fan of the accelerator model, so. <laughs> Thank you for starting Techstars. You're welcome. So 
New York. You've written about New York and, and our tech community. How did New York go from being Wall Street and suits and briefcases to, I want to say, the tech hub that it is uh, and, and, and is becoming? Like, like Brad, I've been in the uh, venture capital business for uh, a long time, for about 20 years, and uh, I've always lived in New York. So um, when uh, I was doing this work in the 90s, early 90s, I would have to, uh, the, the running joke was that all the VCs in New York would find themselves, uh, would find one another on the uh, plane back from San Francisco on Friday afternoon uh, because there wasn't much going on. And uh, then with the advent of the internet, then things started moving. And uh, uh, late 90s, there was uh, uh, lo lots of activity in New York as well as elsewhere. And then there was uh, uh, the crash in, um, in 2000 and then a, a, a slow restart, which has accelerated uh, in, uh, in the past few years. I think uh, um, the, uh, what we have seen, and um, Kelly was alluding to the uh, book that was just published uh, uh, by myself and my co-author, Maria Teresa Cometa, who's in the audience, um, which is called Tech and the City. And there we try to explore what has happened, a little bit of history, but more importantly, uh, through the voices of the, all the people we interviewed, trying to understand what has taken place. And some of the things that have taken place are some of the things that uh, the Brad also referred to, which is really fundamentally the building of a community. And uh, if I had to uh, peg this on something that has happened in particular in New York, uh, I would probably try to think about uh, September 11 and, uh, and uh, Scott Heiferman. Scott Heiferman, who's the founder of, uh, of Meetup, uh, actually came up with the idea of Meetup after uh, the, uh, the uh, Twin Towers uh, collapse because he realized that uh, there was a strong sense of community at that point and there needed to be ways to, uh, to build communities with different types of interests. And that's how why I started the uh, the company, and uh, part of Meetup was also um, one one part of it was dedicated to technology, which was uh, uh, the uh, called New York Tech Meetup, which today counts more than thirty thousand members in New York, uh, and uh, gathers uh, about a thousand people every month uh, at NYU. Uh, uh, this something you guys also do in Boulder, uh, but uh, um, how? Scott, when we, we talked to him, told us how the first time uh, he, uh, he came up with the idea of building the technology community in New York, he sort of uh, sent out a bunch of emails and called a bunch of people and uh, had this first meeting and uh, one person showed up. And uh, there was uh, Don Barber. That would Barber. be Don Barber, Don yes. Barber, yes. Uh, who was co-founder of, of the New York Tech Meetup. And, and, um, and then the next time uh, there were like you know four people and then ten and then fifteen and twenty and uh, and then a hundred and uh, and that's who grew up. It grew, grew up grows up uh, organically, starts with entrepreneurs as Brad was saying before, uh, but it really takes uh, every every uh, community and and every revolution really starts with a few people that want to get something done, and uh, in in this case it's really a few entrepreneurs that want to get something done. They want to build a community in New York. And uh, I point to, to Scott because it's sort of the, you know, a little bit the symbol of this, but, uh, but there is also many others that uh, after the uh, uh, rubble of, uh, of the stock market crash in 2000 and then the, uh, the Twin Towers uh, were able to continue working and, and build the community for the ground up. I'll add one last thing, uh, which is uh, in the past few years we've seen an acceleration of, uh, of the community buildup, and this is also thanks to a um, unlikely uh, protagonist, which is uh, the local government. Usually when the government gets involved, it's bad news. In our case, probably New York is the exception, uh, Mayor Bloomberg and, and its, his uh, staff and organizations have actually helped uh, create uh, uh, and build up the community, helped bring more uh, technology knowledge to the city by bringing a new technology campus to New York uh, University. Uh, and help with a bunch of different activities. I've done in a way that's very smart, which is uh, put in the city investment or, uh, or start, the, uh, uh, start the activity, but then get out of the way and let other people run it. And uh, so uh, that's uh, something to be, one thing that uh, we New Yorkers have to be thankful to is, is really the uh, uh, Mayor Bloomberg and the local government for the work they've done in the past few years.
You, you, you're not sitting next to me next time because you're like looking over my shoulder at the questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I so, hacked you know, into your Because we were talking about this. Okay, so I want to punt back to Brad and, all right, let's talk about, you know, you've now opened the door on this, which was going to be my next question. What is the role of government? Because we are in a unique position that we have a mayor who is an entrepreneur. But, you know, and, and reading Steve Blank's last five blog posts on being in China, where you have a totally government driven entrepreneurial model, it is successful with a, few, with a number of cracks, uh, reading quite clearly through Steve's words in his, in his post, but what's your view on, on government? I, I think uh, the, first, the first edict of government in the context of startup communities should be do no harm. So if you look across, and, and, and I know the U.S. well, I know internationally less well, I know some places around the world, but really in the U.S., uh, the impact of the federal government uh, on entrepreneurship uh, is often very muddy. Uh, lots of stuff, it, lots of energy goes into things that don't translate into a lot of activity. At the state and local government, you tend to see things that can have real impact. And you see situations like New York where there is this positive dynamic. But government naturally wants to control things. And so what you see is you see a lot of activi activity from state and local government in an effort to control what's going on in the startup community or in a way to sort of centralize and essentially get the right people working on the right things. And that's the exact opposite of what government should be doing. What government should be doing is uh, essentially enabling stuff and then, to your point, getting out of the way. Finding opportunities within government, within the existing infrastructure, within the existing things that government touches like university infrastructure, using the bully pulpit uh, of government to shine a light on activities that are actually productive, and then let entrepreneurs make progress. The other thing that uh, government often is afraid to do that has the most impact is have economic policies that directly stimulate uh, startup activity. So you see government quick to at state, local, and federal government quick to actually put money out to try to have certain things happen. But they don't do it very creatively. They do it in sort of a very blunt force way and in a lot of ways very inefficiently. Versus, for example, the idea that uh, they could stimulate a huge amount of investment by providing a local tax credit or a state tax credit for angel investment. And the amount of dollars that they'd have to allocate would be much less. And interestingly, the dollars being allocated would be by investors, not by government. So you run into this cycle over and over again, especially right now where startup and startup activity and entrepreneurship is front of mind. It's clearly a major job creating activity, which all government cares about. Uh, and then all of a sudden it becomes something that government tries to grab onto and co-opt. And you know, my message continually is government can play a role, but it can't control, it can't be the leader. And fundamentally, and it's an issue that I think you know, anybody in this room that's an entrepreneur has run into, is this collision between networks and hierarchies. So government is a hierarchy, academia is a hierarchy, most large companies are a hierarchy. Startup community is a network. There's no president of the New York startup community. There's no vice president of membership. You don't have to get a license to do an event. This is this messy thing, it's this messy network. Just like most startups are, they tend to be very messy. And hierarchies don't like that. They want to put things in boxes and draw lines and control things. And that collision creates a lot of friction. And when the entrepreneurs are the leaders, when things organically develop, and if they're compelling, they continue to develop and continue to grow. And if they're not compelling, they die and something new takes their place. That phenomena moves things much, much forward, much faster than when you actually try to control what's going on. Well, I also think that's what makes Colorado interesting because you don't think of the West as having hierarchy. Well, the, that's, that's very valid. And Colorado is a particularly fascinating place. For those of you that don't know, uh, don't know the cities, um, Boulder, where I live, is 100,000 people. So we fit in like one of the buildings in downtown, entire city. Um, Denver, uh, which is 30 minutes away, by car is two million people. Uh, in 2010, when I started thinking about this, Boulder had about twice as many startups as Denver had. 
So one twentieth the size, about twice as many startups. Today it's about the same because the Denver startup community is accelerating very nicely, partly because of this notion of inclusiveness. So the entrepreneurs in Boulder didn't say, oh, we're better than Denver, leave Denver alone. They, they said to entrepreneurs in Denver, including plenty of Boulder people who lived in Boulder but had companies in Denver, as well as some Boulder companies that were growing very quickly and needed more space in Denver, they said, here's our playbook, like do this in Denver and let's cross-fertilize what's happening and build a broader community. It's very interesting. I was in New Jersey and Hoboken yesterday at the New Jersey Tech Meetup. Uh, it takes less than 30 minutes to get from here to Hoboken. And the idea that the New Jersey startup community or the Hoboken startup community and the New York startup community are disconnected makes no sense. There's a lot of talent and resources that cross back and forth. And that's something that's interesting as you see these startup communities spread is the connectivity and connective tissue between them becomes very powerful. And since you opened the can of worms on government, you've just come back from Italy. And I being have. and being a I'm going to say second generation VC and having deep roots with the venture community in Italy, what's the culture like there and we won't even get into the discussion of the Italian government cuz <laughs> you don't want to <laughs> We'll save that for another podcast. It's, it's, it's an aspiration for our government to be more like the Italian government. <laughs> it's a big, messy network. <laughs> um, well, you know, it was interesting because uh, I, I spent two weeks there because, uh, because I'm Italian. My, my co-author is also Italian. We wrote the book in two languages in, uh, in parallel, and uh, we actually launched a book there, and uh, we had a chance to go around uh, the country. I'm going to stop you there. That's your plan for your next book. Write it in Italian first. <laughs> Italian I'm lucky, French. To, I'm lucky to get it written in English. <laughs> um, and uh, we were lucky to, uh, to go around and meet a lot of interesting people, uh, both uh, from government and from uh, uh, entrepreneurs, and uh, both uh, seasoned entrepreneurs and younger ones. And uh, I got a really good sense for, for what... Um, um, for what is going on there, what people are trying to accomplish. Uh, you know, if you look at it from the ground up, if you talk to the entrepreneurs in Italy, uh, you probably cannot, can, can tell, the, uh, you probably cannot tell any difference between an entrepreneur in Italy, a young entrepreneur in his 20s in Italy, one year. They think the same way, they're well informed, they know what they're doing, they have good ideas. But where, where it changes is really the rest of the, of the, of the system because uh, you have barriers there that uh, you wouldn't dream of having uh, have, having here. I mean, uh, Brad was talking about uh, some of the obstacles that the government uh, uh, puts in place. Uh, the, you know, permits you have to get and some other stuff. You know, Italy is ten times worse. And um, uh, there is also no um, uh, financing um, ecosystem that's well developed as as uh, as it is here. So you have angel investments and you have people that do early stage investments, but then to get further financing becomes very hard. So the formula they're trying to adopt is very similar to what uh, they, they originally started in Israel, which is uh, start a company there and at some point, you know, Israel did it because they have a very small market. So they have to go beyond uh, the country. And what they did is uh, they started companies there, kept development teams there, but then brought the company to the US to build a business. And uh, many, there are already examples of Italian companies doing there as well as other European companies, and I think it's a trend that will continue until the environment gets better in those countries. Well, uh, let's talk about the role of money. Big grown. <laughs> big, big grown, I know. Well, it is a big grown, because how many times, I mean, it's I've, been, I've been in this, I want to say this field of entrepreneurship and startups and, and venture um, not nearly as long as you two. I'm just like dipping my toe in it. But I'm groaning because I don't know how many times I've heard, you know, someone say, I've got this great idea, but I need, you know, what, what, what do entrepreneurs need money? As investors, what do you want to see from entrepreneurs right now before you're ready to pull out your checkbook? Well, I start? I, first of all, the, uh, I said the role money is a big role, but it's certainly a lesser role than it used to be like uh, 15 years ago when uh, to build a company you needed... Uh, Millions and millions of dollars. So they, you know, if you have a if you have a company that's built around the internet, you can do it with uh, probably fifty thousand dollars and uh, leasing services and stuff in the cloud and so on. So the the cost, you know, the 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 uh, the cost of doing getting something done is is much less. Uh, plus, there are methodologies like lean startup methodologies that allows you to do things really uh, inexpensively. 
um, having said that, though, as companies grow, you need uh, you need to have uh, to, to raise capital and uh, angel investors because because now the less money is required, I think have acquired a, a larger role in the uh, in the in the funding. Um, uh, you know, in, in, in the funding for, for startups, because uh, because uh, again, because less money is required. What so I've been making myself angel investments in the past uh, year, and um, uh, to me, you know, the most important thing in, in, in the investment is really, especially this early stage, is really is really the team and the entrepreneur. Uh, so I mean, I look for people that are. Uh, uh, that, that are driven, that are passionate, but they also have some domain expertise in what they're trying to do. So uh, it's not only uh, the passion and uh, the willingness to go uh, through walls, but it's also and change the world. But it's also uh, having acquired a certain type of expertise that allows you to do what you're trying to do. You have to have uh, some knowledge of what um, of what you're trying to uh, of what your objective is in terms of uh, the sector you're targeting or the industry you're targeting. So typically, especially, and this is something we see in New York a lot, um, because a lot of the startups in New York are fundamentally built around existing industries. Um, typically, people come out of those industries and they come up with, a, with an idea that, have, that has a, that's a better way of doing things, or a, sometimes it's a way to disintermediate something that already exists. Uh, but in general, it's something, some, some idea that can optimize some, some existing uh, uh, sector or some existing process or, or something along those lines. And uh, I think that's very, um, that's, a, that's a good thing to look for. But then, you know, it's, it's, it's a wide, uh, we're talking about a wide variety of, of types of things one can invest in. So every, every, every you know, this is generalization, but uh, uh, in general, that's what I, what I look for. Team, team, team. To, to a large extent. <laughs> you still think that was the most annoying you, answers out of investors when they would be asked that question. They'd maybe, be like, it's all about the team, answer. but it's just that, you know, it is. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take a, a slightly different tack on the answer. I want to talk about uh, something I hear everywhere I travel around the U.S., and then I'll also talk about what, what my firm, Foundry Group, how we think about uh, what we invest in. Um, uh, across the country, I hear the same thing over and over again. There's not enough capital here. And my reaction is, that's correct. So there's just never enough capital. There's always going to be the imbalance between supply and demand of capital. And it's always going to be hard to raise capital, and it should be. And it's just part of the dynamic of the system. So it's interesting to think about capital at different layers of the startup cycle. So if you think about capital at the very early layers, and you think about a startup community, Building in a startup community an angel capital and seed capital base is very important. And New York actually has an extremely good one that's not just a function of institutional investors, but many successful entrepreneurs who turn around and write $25,000, $50,000, $100,000, dollars checks at the seed level. So the thing that a startup community can do to nurture and develop itself at a capital level is that layer. The next layer up which is the you know, million, two million to 10 million type financing, post-seed financing, which is often the, the institutional venture capital, is hard everywhere. And even in markets that are very, very active, New York, Boston, San Francisco, the number of companies that successfully raise money at that level relative to the demand for money at that level is very small. And it's very, very hard for a geography, for a startup community to develop that layer of capital. And in fact, this is a place government often puts a lot of energy with very, very little results. The next layer up is the growth capital level. So companies that are now growing very quickly, clearly successful businesses that need to raise 20, 30, 50, 100 million dollars for continued growth or have the opportunity to raise that kind of money because of the acceleration of their business. That capital tends to be relatively easy to raise again because it's not geographically dependent. There's a number of investors that when a company gets to that point, no matter where that company is, it's a set of investors that are looking for it. So I try to encourage in startup communities, especially entrepreneurs, to focus long term, not over a year or two, but over 20 years, in really developing that seed capital layer. And we're seeing that play out in lots of places very powerfully. Now, the firm that I'm part of, Foundry Group, I have three other partners. We're based in Boulder, but we invest around the US. 
we have a set of themes, and if you're curious about them, you can go to foundrygroup.com slash themes that define these areas or these themes that we invest in. If you're not within a theme, we pass immediately. So we have our own set of deep domain knowledge in these themes that we invest in. Many of them are abstract. They're things like human-computer interaction, which doesn't fit nicely into any box or so, but it's a mental framework, an intellectual framework for the four of us to use when we're looking at things. If what you're doing is in a theme, we focus intently on people and the product. And we're looking for people who are completely and totally obsessed about the product they're working on. We have to have a real affinity for the product, but we want the entrepreneurs to be completely obsessed about it. And we know that over the life cycle of a business, especially an early stage one, that product is gonna evolve a lot. But that intensity around the product in these areas that we know really well is a big part of what we're looking for. So tell us why you bought a house in Kansas. <laughs> so I bought a house in Kansas City. You haven't seen the house? No, I have. You I did was, see the house? I have seen the house now. I was there uh, two weeks ago. It's a cute little house. Um, anybody here ever experienced one gigabit internet? That's why I bought the house. Not a lot, for, for people watching the podcast, when, when this comes out, there was no hands. I mean, one, one gigabit internet is fast. You know, it's 50 to 100 times faster than the fastest stuff we're used to in terms of what we use on a regular basis. And uh, Kansas City was the first place in the country that Google Fiber, the Google Fiber project was rolled out to. And... Again, I'm very focused on this notion of startup communities. I've had a long uh, relationship with some people in Kansas City through the Kauffman Foundation. I was at a conference called Think Iowa in Des Moines talking about startup communities, hanging with a bunch of entrepreneurs in the Midwest. And a guy came up to me, a guy named Ben Barreth came up to me and said, he's sort of very nervous, very anxious, very quickly, I bought a house in Kansas City, I'm hooking it up with Google Fiber, it's in this fiber hood that we're creating, it's down... A down fiber hood. Yeah, fiber hood <laughs> down the street from Kansas City Startup Village and da 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 da. And, you know, like I kind of got what he was talking about. I said, well, that's really cool. You know, I'd love to get involved. How can I be helpful? And he's like, uh, I don't know, but, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. And it was intriguing to me. And about two months later, uh, I was just thinking about it. And I sent him a note and said, hey, Ben, uh, you know, I've been thinking about this thing. Are there any houses for sale near your house? And it turns out that there's a whole series of them in this neighborhood that are uh, for sale. Oh, are there any left? There are. Oh, good. And there's a few more people that are buying them. So I, I was the first outsider to buy one. I think three, two or three had already been bought by the time, you know, Ben's and one other, so two. And I was the third. And I bought it literally as an experiment, right? I wanted to participate in the Kansas City startup community in this particular little neighborhood. I wanted to have the experience of Google Fiber and understand what that was like and see what people could do with it. And what I decided to do was have a competition uh, for living in the house for a year. So I ran a competition. Uh, we selected the winner uh, on Monday. I'm going to announce it actually on my blog at feld.com tomorrow. Uh, and it's a company, it's four people that are going to get to live in this house for a year for free. I don't take anything. I don't take any equity in their company. They don't pay any rent. Uh, I, I pay for the Google Fiber. Uh, they have to pay for all the other utilities. There was no refrigerator, so I bought a refrigerator today for them. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I just want to see what they do. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, their idea for their business was compelling. There was a bunch of companies that applied. And a lot of it for me is the way I learn is by running experiments, just lean startup model uh, dynamic. And I just like to run experiments. And this felt like a really interesting experiment just to see what people would do and to see how the community around this resource, which is a scarce resource, the only place in the country right now with this other than Chattanooga, Tennessee, is, which has their own infrastructure, is Kansas City. And Austin has now been announced, and Google Fiber is going to roll out there sometime next year. And AT&T announced very quickly after that that they would be rolling out gigabit internet as well. I just want to see what happens. To see what they make. Yeah. I just want free Wi-Fi in an airport on a consistent basis. <laughs> it's not one gigabit that you're getting in the airport. <laughs> I'll take any, let me, let any me tell free you, it bit. It was nothing quite like seeing the speed meter come up and seeing like 873 uh, uh, megabits per second. Like it was just insane. And then actually experiencing that uh, just doesn't quite 
resonant. I mean, it's just it was crazy. You know, you open a you open a YouTube t you open a tab with YouTube and you press play, and it buffers immediately. And then you open another one while it's playing, and it buffers immediately. And you keep doing that, and you have ten of them open, and they're still buffering immediately. Like there's no saturation of the bandwidth. Wow. Well, we'll be I'm going to say we'll be on your blog tomorrow, and we'll be interested to see what this what these companies build before. We open it up for questions. It's giving all of you a warning to come up with your questions. And uh, the folks from Apple have got microphones so we can hear your questions. The other thing in all of this that we, we were talking about before, so we've got this government role, and you've seen academics, and you see courses in entrepreneurship. Can entrepreneurship be taught? Absolutely. So I, I think that. Uh, you know, there's this age-old debate about is entrepreneurship genetic uh, or environmental or is it taught? And there's a long history of entrepreneurial education at universities. And much of that entrepreneurial education is mediocre at best and in some cases wor worthless or even detrimental. There are a number of programs today that are getting quite good and a number of places that have spent a lot of time thinking about how to effectively provide entrepreneurial education. Uh, and I call out where I went to school, MIT is an example of that. I think MIT is doing a particularly good job of thinking about the process and then teaching the process of entrepreneurship. Techstars is entrepreneurship education, right? And Accelerator is you know, a 90-day program that has an incredible amount of education packed into it that's not formal, it's not classroom, it's experiential. And the best kind of education for something like entrepreneurship tends to be experiential. It's very easy to get a shallow layer of context around lots of things. It's a whole different thing to work on something intently with a mentor or with mentors, with people who guide you through it, with people who give you feedback. And there is no question that entrepreneurs get better over the course of their uh, entrepreneurial arc through what they learn. And so the notion that there's no learning component of it makes no sense. The idea that it's a undergraduate curriculum when you have no experience is not as effective. Then the last thing I'd say in this context is you see lots of new approaches to entrepreneurship emerging. Lean Startup with you know, Eric Ries and Lean Launchpad and customer development with Steve Blank, which was really, I think, for the software industry in the last four or five years, very impactful intellectually. Um, you, you see many of these approaches uh, infiltrate not just the creation of product, but the creation of company and the way that you think about building your company as a lean company or an agile company rather than this sort of monolithic thing that has this product development that looks a certain way. And we're still really learning a lot of stuff about how to do that. And it's the first time in this particular uh, industry, I think, or around, industry is the wrong word. This is the first time in the context of entrepreneurship where there's enough people from different perspectives trying to actually decompose it and make a science of it I don't think that the instinct and the muscle and the charisma and the natural ability ever goes away. But there's no question that there's an enormous amount of training that can come. And if you want to call it education, that's fine too. <laughs> no, I think it's a much better way, way of putting it rather than thinking it's, you know, like a, like, I don't know, like a degree you get or a course you go and take over a weekend or, or something. But your thoughts on teaching uh, well, entrepreneurship? Brad gave a great answer. Uh, I think. Uh, I think uh, that uh, you know, entrepreneurship is something you, you learn by doing at the end. And uh, I think the, um, the best thing an entrepreneur can do is really try to get the uh, uh, mentors to help you and, uh, and talk to a lot of people and uh, consult people. Uh, Brad talked before about the, uh, you know, these open environments of these networks. I think building, building the network can be, can be very valuable for an entrepreneur because you learn from people that have made the same mistakes before. Why repeat them, right? Um, and uh, and now uh, you also see some uh, uh, some courses and some uh, curriculum built in certain schools that try to capture all of this and, and teach it to people. And uh, uh, you know, MIT was mentioned, but you know there is a number of schools that are working on uh, on things like that. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll get more involvement also from uh, Columbia NYU in New York uh, to do things. They're already doing some things, but I think more needs to be done in that respect. 
more, more of that interaction. All right, I'm sure there are questions out there. Oh, I didn't need to do much there. All right. Hello. Um, there's been some progress on the international visa situation today. Interested in your perspectives of the U.S. versus the world. And specifically, if you had to buy a house in a different country than the U.S. because of its prospects for the next 10 years, which country would you choose? That's a good question for the two of you. Uh, I, I have been, for, for context, I was one of the original founders of the startup visa movement. There are about seven of us. Fred Wilson, also from, from New York, was very involved at the beginning. Um, and we've been advocating for this since 2009, 2000, end of 2009, beginning of 2010. Um, I have not uh, read the bill carefully yet that uh, came out today. Uh, I've just seen a few things. So I don't have actually any good sense of what it looks like for, for real. So I don't know whether we're making progress or not. Um, I'm hopeful that in this cycle there will be uh, much better uh, uh, visa situation for entrepreneurs from other countries. I think it's insane that in the U.S. Uh, we make it hard for somebody to come here to start a company. I think it's beyond insane that somebody could come here and get a college degree or an advanced degree and then couldn't get a visa to start a company in this country. It's just absurd. So I'm hopeful that we'll make progress, but I don't know whether we are or not. It's too new. Um, I would say that of other countries in the world, um, the, country that I, the two countries that I have been most impressed with in terms of their approach uh, to startup visa, entrepreneur visa, and this sort of reinvention of entrepreneurship as a core part uh, of their economies are Canada and the UK. And Canada is not that much of a surprise because of the dynamics of a lot of things that Canada has done for a long time. So I didn't pay him to talk about Canada. The, the I'm, I'm Canadian, just, just okay. so. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, think, I think that there are many, many, many really interesting things going on in Canada. I think the Can Canadian government has been very forward thinking about this. The UK surprised me. And it's been very significant what's happening in London, what, very significant what's happening in Tech City. Uh, the UK entrepreneur's visa uh, is, is very powerful. And the way that entrepreneurs get that visa is significant. If you go on the Techstars blog tomorrow, uh, you'll see something about uh, the UK and the entrepreneur's visa and Techstars. And I've been really, uh, I've been really pleasantly surprised because I had done business in the UK in the late 90s and, uh, and had some companies there and just didn't feel the same level of energy and intensity and focus around this as something that was important to the culture as I have felt in the last couple of years. Those would be my two. I was to say, just on the, on the UK, knowing John and the now, the now Techstars team in London, knowing them well through their mobile program, every, every company in that program, those 10 companies, all of them were foreign. And, and you know, I think both of us having accelerators here in the US, the thought of having 10 companies with all foreign-born entrepreneurs in a, an accelerator program is enough to kind of... Yeah, and just for Make context, your hair on fire. Just for context, John is John Bradford, who's the managing director of what used to be called uh, Springboard uh, in the UK. That's now Techstars London uh, program that we are now running this summer. And he's spectacular. But it's just a good example of uh, entrepreneur-led um, government support uh, and the momentum build, which in the US, in terms of our federal government, we, uh, entrepreneurs have not been able to motivate or uh, make progress against some of these things that seem so fundamental and so basic. And, and uh, you know, uh, the, the thing to add also, I mean, I, I met with them when uh, they were over here, and uh, some of those entrepreneurs would, would gladly come to New York or oh. to the U.S. If, right. if they could, but uh, the visa situation has left them, so... Uh, London is a good choice for them right now. And, and for anyone who's watching this, it's sort of they understand the extent of why this, um, why this visa is so urgent besides the fact that we're educating people in the degrees that we need uh, and we're requiring them to go back um, home wherever home is. It's predicted by 2020 that we will only be able to um, fill 30% of the technology jobs with people who are educated in this country. It's, I mean, it's a crisis. And, uh, you know, so this is not, gee, it's a nice thing to do, and gee, these people are here getting educated, blah, blah, blah. 
we need this talent because we're not producing it ourselves. Brad, this question came from uh, Venture Deals, your book, um, that I read actually on the flip side as the lawyer figuring out what we do to irritate uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, a lot of the points are focused on how to outsmart your lawyer or how to get around them as a roadblock. And so, uh, and you mentioned also today that, you know, there's this hierarchical system that likes to put people and things in boxes and organize them, and frankly, lawyers love to do that. Um, have you seen any strategies that navigating this multi-party system of investors, attorneys, and entrepreneurs, where everyone is a bit more effective at communicating what it is they really need, and I think even before that, identifying what it is they really need from each other. Yep. So uh, one of my motivations and my partner Jason Mendelson's motivations for writing this book, Venture Deals, for those of you that are not familiar with it, the sub subtitles on business books almost always tell the story of what the book's about. So the subtitle on, on Venture Deals is, uh, be smarter than your lawyer and venture capitalist. Um, a big motivation for writing the book was exactly to that issue. Until uh, the mid-2000s, uh, the art of doing an early-stage venture deal was mysterious. And VCs negotiated them all the time, and entrepreneurs would negotiate a couple over the course of their career, but it was impossible to understand what mattered and what didn't matter, how to negotiate the terms, how to think about it, and in a lot of cases, a way to understand the underlying you know, legal arcania. Some uh, lawyers, corporate lawyers, were specialists in doing early stage venture deals, but many were not. And so many entrepreneurs would end up in this situation with a lawyer who didn't actually really know what mattered or didn't matter, negotiating against a very savvy venture capitalist who did know what mattered and didn't matter, who was able to play the lawyer uh, off the entrepreneur and end up with a deal that was ad advantageous to the VC and disadvantageous to the entrepreneur for no good reason. So that was one of the motivations, to bring transparency to the dynamic. And in the mid-2000s, Jason and I wrote a bunch of uh, posts on my blog at feld.com that were in a term sheet series that make up about 15, 20% of the book. We, we rewrote them, but the book goes much further than that. Thing one is educate yourself as an entrepreneur. None of this stuff is actually that hard. And so if you read venture deals, you get 80, 90% of what you need to know in any negotiation, and sometimes 100% of it. You also get a way to evaluate and understand whether your lawyer actually understands what matters in the context of the negotiation. Fortunately, in 2013, there are many more well-educated venture lawyers, and part of that is a function, I think, of entrepreneurs being smarter and knowing how to evaluate them better. And some of it is that the lawyers have had to get better at communicating what matters in the context of a deal to their clients. So I actually think between those three parties, the, for an early stage deal, there's not that much that really matters. But if you don't know what matters, it's easy to get gamed. And I think a lot of VCs who are, uh, especially ones that are ex-entrepreneurs and angel investors who are ex-entrepreneurs tend to be less focused on taking advantage of the entrepreneur and squeezing the best possible deal out. That's something else that shifted over a period of time. But I think that shift has happened because of this transparency, not because of just the general goodness of human nature. Thanks. I was just wondering if you guys had any advice specific to female founders who were raising seed rounds for their companies? Does your advice change at all? Uh, and I know one of your and yeah, I want to say one of your no. investments is sitting in the front you know, row and happens to be a female. Uh, yes, yeah, so I was thinking that I, I spent the past year making several venture uh, angel investments, and uh, about thirty percent of my investments have been with uh, women CEOs. And uh, you should also know that uh, in New York, there's basically percentage-wise, there's twice as many women CEOs compared to uh, Silicon Valley. Um, now. Uh, what, what advice uh, would I give? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know that we give a, a female CEO any, any advice that would be different to a to a male CEO. Uh, to me, it doesn't make a, uh, any difference. I mean, I, I just look at the uh, um, people I talk to and uh, try to help or invest in or uh, or be a mentor to just 
the same way. And uh, um, uh, so I would, I would, um, I would tell you to just uh, do do what uh, what you think needs to be done, and uh, and and people will listen. Uh, there is no there is no special advice that needs to be given. Uh, I'd add a couple of things. One is um, I'm chairman, chair of an organization called National Center for Women in Information Technology. It's ncwit.com. Uh, we have an entrepreneurial alliance. If you go to ncwit.com slash EA, it's free to any startup that wants to join. You get all the benefits of a corporate member of ncwit, which are you know Google, Intel, HP, et cetera. And one of the things that you get is you get uh, a peer group of other entrepreneurial companies, some led by women, some led by men, but who are all focused on this issue of increasing the number of women in entrepreneurial companies around software and internet. So that's a tactical thing to do, just in terms of having a broader connect. We also on NCWIT have a program called the Heroes Program. If you type NCWIT space Heroes, we have interviews with almost 90 female entrepreneurs. When we started doing that program, when we would ask people, who are the top 10 entrepreneurs that you know? At best, they might come up with one woman's name. And we did this program because there are hundreds of successful, very successful female technology entrepreneurs that are just not known. And so to try to give people uh, their stories, the pattern matching against what they did at different, you know, different age groups and different demographics. Uh, the last point I'd make is I've spent a lot of time in the last six or seven years trying to understand this problem of why there are on a percentage basis, so many less women in computer science than men, and also in the context of entrepreneurship. And there's a lot of tactical things to it that can address it. Techstars would be an example. In our very first Techstars program, we had one female founder out of 30 founders. And today, about 30% of the founders are women, and a number of the CEOs are women. That wasn't because we started selecting women. That's because we started focusing on the recruiting pipeline and trying to reach into the recruiting pipeline to get more women to apply and to participate in what was going on. Part of that dynamic is really the thing, I think, that is the single biggest clog in the system of women getting involved in entrepreneurship, uh, which is something called unconscious bias. And Sheryl Sandberg's book, uh, uh, Lean In, talks some about it. It's something that we've been talking about in NCWIT now for about three years and really have come to believe is at the root of a lot of uh, the issue. We all have unconscious bias. Men and women all have an unconscious bias. The challenge is it's unconscious. We don't realize that we're having this bias. And so as a female entrepreneur, you will encounter unconscious bias. And uh, that is something that there's not much you can do about it today other than recognize it and work through it. Right, recognize that it's going to be an inhibitor, but it's something you can change for the next generation quite significantly. And something I think that every female entrepreneur and every female technology uh, participant and executive is having an impact. My hope is that the unconscious bias in this uh, segment will be gone 20 years from now, but it's something that just takes, I mean, we talk about plenty of tactical things on the NCWIT website and I won't drag everybody through it, so go there if you're interested, but that's the essence uh, of the challenge, and if, again, as a female entrepreneur, you recognize that you're gonna bump into that, I'm not sure it changes your behavior, um, but it gives you an understanding of what's happening. It's not deliberate, it's not conscious. Yeah, and I think there's people out there who, who are so desiring of making change, and as investors, we look around and we say, if we're going to create the innovation, if we're gonna create the world we wanna create, we have to look more broadly in where innovation, where ideas are coming from. Um, and, you know, Techstars and Brad are looking widely. We're looking widely with Women Innovate Mobile. I see Marat there in the second row, column out with Entrepreneurs Roundtable. You know, we're looking for ideas and you look for differences to create that creativity. I think you've also heard in terms of that question, I mean, we've been started, let's go back to where we started, which was startup communities. Um, you know, how do you get, 
how do we invest in anything? It's because we meet people and we know them. It's not because someone comes in and blows us away with a presentation and we say, oh my God, they're going to crack that big market. There's the product for me. It's like, who is this person? And so you've got to spend time. You've got to get away from, you know, I'm going to say what you're supposed to be doing, which is working on your product. And you've got to meet us and you've got to know us. And it's through that personal relationship that, and, and, and for us, the challenge is bringing more people into those networks of relationships, and that's where that unconscious bias is, and that's where we need to be, I'm going to say, is the people sitting here with access to relationships and money have to be open the door for, for other people. So, more questions. Hi. So, my question is, uh, earlier Alessandro referred to New York as having a lot of sort of diverse industries here, from finance to fashion to food. Um, and so I think that necessarily informs the types of startups that we have in our community. So Brad, um, my question is initially for you. Uh, I know that there's an emerging marketplace theme at Foundry. Can you talk a little bit about whether you're starting to see more of a groundswell of marketplace type um, startups coming from the New York City ecosystem as a result maybe of, of our pretty diverse industrial reach? Yeah. So. Uh to the specific uh, theme of ours, which we, we're calling marketplace, uh, we're looking for a particular type of two-sided marketplaces online. And I'll give some examples quickly. Uh, we're looking for marketplaces where there's something called a remnant asset. And a remnant asset is something that expires. It has shelf life. It goes away if it's not used. Those are the marketplaces that we're particularly interested in an investor. Um, one of them that's New York-based uh, came out of Techstars called SideTour, which is a marketplace for events. And if the event isn't used, it goes away. Uh, another one which actually just launched in New York that came out of Techstars in Boulder is a company called PivotDesk, which helps sublease office space. So if you're trying to sublease office space, either because you're growing too fast and just need more space, or you took too much space and you want to use that extra space and sublease it, it's a real pain. And landlords are a pain to deal with, and the system's a pain to deal with, and managing, it's not your business, it's just a pain to deal with. So, so essentially, Pivot Desk manages all that, and every day that you have extra space that sits empty is a remnant asset. We have another company in Seattle that came out of a startup weekend called Rover, and Rover does this for dog sitters. Turns out that uh, only 10% of people who have a dog will put their dog in a kennel. 90% rely on friends or family members or don't go on vacation or whatever uh, or struggle to figure out how to deal with their dog on short notice. Same kind of thing. There's a remnant asset on both sides of the marketplace. So that's what we're interested in. Um, I think that there are enormous number of, of opportunities in that. I think the challenge for, and I think New York has plenty of companies that will emerge from that. I think the challenge with this marketplace is most people don't do a good enough job of thinking about both sides and make sure that both sides of the marketplace has a remnant asset. And so you see a lot of marketplaces where inventory can build up on either side. And then you have this endless supply demand imbalance when inventory starts to build up on one side. So I'd encourage you, if you're thinking about marketplaces, to try to find stuff that expires on both the buy and the sell side. Great. Well, guys, please, let's have one more round of applause for Kelly Hoey, Alessandro Piol, and Brad Feld. Thank you so much, guys, Thank for coming you. in again and doing this with us.